This week on Writers Inc. The ideal thing I want is is for traditional authors, mid-list authors, whose names we know, whose books we see in the in the supermarket and uh, at airports. I want them to start hearing about the kind of money that Mark Dawson and um, L.J. Ross and, and others are making, and them to go. Huh. If I divide my advances by the last three years, I've made seventy-five thousand a year or, or two hundred thousand a year. Even these guys are knocking on a million. This is hmm, maybe there is something because that's the frankly money talks, right? That's the thing that's going to make them take indie seriously. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writers In. Well, hey, man, you got some great news coming out of the Netherlands I want to hear about. Yeah, I feel like I need to go out and buy some Dutch beer. Um, <laughs> so apparently I've, I've been on the number two slot in the Netherlands for a couple of weeks now, and I'm, I'm not sure if I still am. Um, my publisher finally, I, like I saw a screenshot on Twitter of it. Now I was trying to decipher it because I don't read Dutch and like, you know, you can hit the little translate button on the bottom and it doesn't always come through very clear. And like the translation was like even more confusing than just trying to read it in Dutch. Um, so then I emailed my agent and, you know, they're kind of in the same boat over there that we are here in the States. Like everybody's working from home and like everything's delayed. Um, so I finally got a response back and apparently I'm, I'm sitting in the number two slot, which is, which is awesome. That's amazing. Thanks. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Me and Hasselhoff were real big in, in Germany and the <laughs> Netherlands. Um, and it, I, it, it sounds like a tour. The, um, I could hear, I could see a tour coming up Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> to work on those dance moves. Um, <laughs> And, it, and it's about to come out next week in uh, Spain. Um, and it sounds like that one's going to probably hit the, the list over there too. The, the first two did really well there. Um, so they, they've got high hopes for the third one, but it sounds like, you know, pre-orders and everything else are, are really solid. So we'll, we'll see what happens, but those four markets are, they're kicking right now, which is really cool. And, and Six Wicked Child is, um, you know, part of that was self-published, you know, like we had talked about that before. Um, you know, I indie published here in the States, um, in, in the U S and UK and Canada, um, but then over in the uh, foreign markets, we, we got traditional publishers involved. Um, so it's, it's a mix of both. So it's kind of an experiment for me, but it seems to be working really well. And I'm, I'm seeing similar things with um, Broken Thing. Um, you know, we, we follow that same format. So who knows? That might be something that I continue doing down the, down the road. That's fantastic. What are, the, what are the sales like on the first two books? Uh, they're, they're actually, I mean, they're holding steady. Like they all, all of those books in that series are typically in like the first couple thousand in the Amazon store. Um, fifth, uh, fourth monkey last month was a prime, um, like free for prime, um, members. So like that, that tends to really bring it up. And I think it peaked at like a hundred something. Um, and it held there for a little while and now it's like around 2000 again. And then fifth to die, they, they moved that one into that same program. So that one peaked, um, six wicked child, you know, like there's, I've got no idea at Amazon, like who you contact to set up that kind of thing. Like I've had it happen before and Amazon just sends you an email and asks you, Hey, do you want your book to be part of prime lending? Yeah. Um, and you just, you know, it's a yes or no thing. And you're probably talking to some robot somewhere. Right. So it's not like I can reach out to somebody, but I, I would love to put six wicked child in that program, you know, for like next month just to keep that going with all three. But I just, I have no idea who to, to contact on it. Um, 
I was going through sales numbers with, with Kristen and it's, it's a weird dynamic because, you know, a lot of my sales are electronic. I sell a lot of eBooks, a lot of uh, Kindle unlimited is huge for me. Yeah. Um, and, and those do translate into, you know, into book sales. It's just, you know, it's a different metric. Um, you know, and she's actually out this week with submissions for, uh, for a new book that I just gave her the one I've been working on. Um, so she, you know, took a lot of that information and she's using it when she talks to them. Um, but it, you know, right now it's, it's honestly, it's a good place to be because, you know, with, you know, I love bookstores, but they're closed. <laughs> you know, people can't go into Barnes and Noble. They can't go order, you know, go to their local bookstore, um, and, and get one of my books. So to have that, that, you know, strong sales on the ebook side is, is very helpful. Um, especially in talking to uh, editors and publishers because, you know, they're scrambling. A lot of their authors are the exact opposite. They've got strong paper sales um, and ebook just isn't there because, you know, like a lot of the traditional publishers, they tend to outprice, you know, they're, they've got ebooks at $14, $15, $16, you know, some, some really high number. Um, and a lot of them won't, uh, they won't enter their books into Kindle Unlimited. They, they don't want any part of that program. Um, so this is, you know, this virus is kind of turning everything on its head. So we'll see where that goes. Yeah. Well, Hey man, congrats. That, no matter what, that's awesome. It's uh, super cool to hear. And, uh, you have to keep us updated uh, for you and the Hasselhoff tour whenever that happens. Yeah. I'll get a poster to you for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would make my holiday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. Well, we also have, um, a little experiment that we're gonna, that we're currently working on that we we're going to talk about today. Should we get into that a little bit? Yeah. So we, we've had a lot of questions from people about, um, you know, my mentoring, um, you know, me, I, I do that on the side, um, just my process in general, um, you know, what I've been doing with you because we've been taking a novel that you're working on and, you know, I'm kind of helping you, you know, through each step of the way. Um, so we've gotten a lot of questions on that and we decided to try and we, we wanted to come up with a way to share that process with, with our audience. Um, so what we're going to do is, is take a short story that you've written, um, which I haven't seen yet. Um, and we're going to put it through the ringer. So you're, you're going to polish it as best you can on your side, then send it over to me. I'm going to completely tear it apart and tell you every place where you screwed up. <laughs> and, and, you know, we're going to try and fine tune that and get it, you know, it's it turned into the best possible short story we can. And then we're going to take all those steps and we're going to put them out on, um, on our website for the, for the podcast. So our listeners can actually see that. Yeah. You'll be able to see how the sausage is made. Everything from uh, the handwritten brainstorming session I start with to the final Moby that you could read on your Kindle. We'll, we're going to show you all the steps in between so you can kind of see that process. Yep. So we'll see. I, I don't know I mean, any idea when that's going to actually go up from a time frame I guess standpoint. It, I guess it depends on us, right? <laughs> I would say uh, <laughs> I would say weeks as opposed to months if I had to guess. Okay. Ballpark. Yeah. It's, it's fun though. I'm, I'm already having fun with it. So it's, uh, it, and I love getting my, my stuff torn apart. So I'm up, I'm game. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a huge part of this process to be honest with you. Cause a lot of people just aren't open to that. You know, they, they, they write their story, they write their book and they're like, this is my absolute best. They're like it can't be changed. Like how, how dare you even tell me that something is wrong. Um, it, you gotta be open-minded to, to that sort of thing. I mean, because if it's not coming from a peer or, you know, a friend or, you know, a copy editor or whatever, it's going to be coming from your agent or it's going to be coming from an editor. And, and worst case, you hear about it from the, the readers. You know, the last thing you want to do is read a one-star review because of some mistake that you could have fixed, you know, early on in the process, if you would have taken the time. So that, that's really what a lot of this is about is just, you know, taking, taking, finding that diamond in, in the rough and just polishing it as best you can. Yeah. And I'm, I, I want to be able to write the best stories possible. I don't care about gold stars or, or praise <laughs> from people I don't know. Like I, I, I want people to be critical with my, my stuff so I can get better. And I, I think for any writer who has that kind of mindset, then that, that sort of process with a coach, a mentor, a writing partner is invaluable. 
Yeah, I, I kind of cringe every once in a while when I hear an author say, I don't be, read my reviews. Um, and and I, do you read your reviews? I do. Okay. Yeah. I mean, cause, cause I do. And like, and I, and I don't focus, you know, I, I love seeing the five star and the four star, but I, I do look at those one and twos, you know, when they do come across to, to see if it's something that I could fix or whether, you know, somebody is just mad at me for using foul language, yeah. you know, it's just that I get those too, but yeah. You know, or, or the book shipped that, late. Those are always the best one stars, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't get that. You know, like people don't realize they're punishing the author. Right. Um, you know, they give a one star review because Amazon took two extra days to get the book to their, their doorstep, <laughs> you know, have heaven forbid, you know, there's, there's no pandemic going on or anything slowing them down um but yeah um you know if if, if it's good constructive criticism it's, it's worthwhile but you know if you make a mistake especially when you start selling big numbers you know it, it you don't hear about it from one person you hear about it from a hundred people or a thousand people all telling you where you screwed up yeah um, and you don't want that because you know those people may not pick up your next book yeah um or or somebody might be you know sitting there with their finger hovering over the buy button and they might see one of those and say oh maybe i'll try this other one instead um, and then you lose them. You know, it's, it's just that easy. Yeah. Yeah. So that's going to be fun. We'll, we'll keep everyone updated as we, as we go along, let you know when it's coming, but soonish, it won't take us too long. We're just doing a really short, short story. So it's not a big commitment. Yep. Can't All wait. right. So who do we got on the docket today? Oh, I'm looking forward to this one. We've got James Blatch from self-publishing formula. Um, now this is a guy I've been listening to for a very long time. I met him, you know, just like I met you, I met him at Thriller Fest. Um, I was on a panel with, with actually with Mark Dawson and I had no idea who Mark actually was. Um, and, and Jim pulled me aside like after it and he's like, Hey, we'd love to interview for, for SPF. Um, so I went out in the hallway and did that and I got to know those guys and, you know, I started listening to their podcast and taking some of their, their classes because, you know, we've talked about this before, like I'm a total mess when it comes to Amazon and Facebook ads. And, and those guys are great at, you know, putting it, you know, down on paper or on the screen in a way that's easy to understand, easy to follow and implement. Um, so I, I send people there all the time to their, their website and to their courses. And, and I listen to the podcast every week. It's one of the few that I, I still listen to because um, they, they have fantastic guests. Yeah, they do. And always great information. I, I, I listen to it every week as well, have been for years. And I think what's going to be fun about this conversation is we all know Mark Dawson. <laughs> like, how, how do you not know Mark Dawson, right? And you know his accomplishments, and he's fantastic and incredibly generous. I think I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking to, to James and, and hearing about like his role in, in SPF and, and, and even more importantly, that book he's been working on, which, uh, you know, is, is kind <laughs> hey, of I'm, what, nine years now, yeah. 10 years now, I, I've, I've lost track. Um, but I, I think but, it's, yeah, I, mean, yeah. I, I, I read somewhere um, that, you know, you've got a lifetime to, to write that first book and you've got six months to write the second one. So <laughs> let's, let's hope he's got his, his process figured out in time for, for book number two. Nice. Well, let's bring him on and we'll hear what he has to say. All right. Here he is, James Blatch. The first question I have to ask you is, uh, where are you with the last flight? Yeah, good question. Right? So, I, <laughs> I mean, I, I wish I, let me say from the beginning, I know it sounds like it's been a long time, <laughs> uh, but that is because people have been following it quite closely. And Lots of people I meet. I don't know how long it took you to write your first novel, but long lots time. of people I meet. Yeah, they say it took like five to ten years. It's kind <laughs> of a when it started to when it went out. So it is going to be. I started it on November the first, twenty ten. So it is going to be within nine years, I think. But I did nothing with it for a long time, right. and then you know I just did the NaNoWriMo, kind of finished it, but knew it needed a lot of work, and, and just left it. And then only really it's been about two and a half years this bit, which has been a long time. So where am I? It's with the copy editor. Um, which is everything I do, I'm doing for the first time as an author, right? So it goes to a copy editor. I don't really know 
what's involved in that. He he's very good. A guy called Mark Swift here in the UK, and he uh, it, we have a backwards and forth conversation about consistency of things like using italics. Um, obviously, some of these straightforward stuff like I didn't really know how to do quotes at the beginning of it, so <laughs> he sorted that out. But italics, internal thoughts, whether he, whether I want them and whether we're going to be, you know, obviously he wants to be consistent and then things like telling the time and degrees because it's a military thing with headings and all this stuff. And and he's, I mean, I think we are going to hit 9,000 line edits. Oof. Seems wow. like a lot, but <laughs> like I say, it, it's, I'm writing my second book now and I'm already way ahead of the curve in terms of, of getting a lot of that stuff right from the beginning. So, oh, absolutely. So yeah. It's with him. He's given me, he, he, he let me have a look at it after seven and a half thousand <laughs> just to get an <laughs> idea of what he was doing. So I've got it here, but I can't really work on it because he's then going to give me the whole thing. He's doing passes rather than working sequentially through it. So right. I've got to wait for it to come back. I'm really hoping it's this week and I want to launch it in January. And I've got a lot of the other stuff sorted out. I've got the back matter sorted out. I've uh, got it here somewhere. I've done it. Oh, yeah, we're not filming this, but I've got a um, crash report authentically made to look like, you can see it at least, looks like a 1960s redacted crash report, which is what people <laughs> will get if they get to the end of the novel and, and a little bit of, sort of value added stuff. Nice. All that's being set up. And I've had a couple of beta readers, including two sort of just readers, not, not author friends, and that's been good. They've, their feedback's been good. And, you know, one of them reads a lot of these novels and he said he would definitely tell his friends to read it and he was absorbed with it. And that's fine. Then picked out quite a few things and every little thing they say, you think, yeah, you're right about that and characters and stuff. And Mark's telling me to resist making further big changes. <laughs> but I do have Nathan Van Koop. So I've got a call with him tomorrow. He's one of our community. lives down in Florida. Very good guy. I know right. Nathan. Yeah, I met yeah, him. Yeah, you know Nathan. Mm -hmm. So I, I did ask him in September, he wouldn't mind giving it a once over. And he's he's like, I think you need to make some changes. Ah. And so he's calling me tomorrow. We've got a call tomorrow. My heart is sinking at the ah. prospect of this. So I don't really know, you know, tomorrow we'll see, but I really want to get it out in January, Jay. I want to be able to say I'm an author. You are. You are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, 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 so, I'm, I'm certainly got the, the painful bit of being an author, which is kind of trying to give birth to a novel. But uh, how has uh, is Mark sort of kind of standing on the sidelines, just like, you know, rubbing his chin, kind of watching you go through this? Or is he saying, hey, buddy, listen, you, you might want to kind of go in this direction over here. He's I've not I've not he, he definitely wants to be involved in the launch. Uh, you know, adv advising me of how to do it, but we've not got to that stage. I'm kind of resisting until I've got, when I start doing the line edits, that is the first time I can act, because I've been trying to get to this point for so long. That's the first time I'll be able to think, do you know what, when I get to the end of that, it's ready. <laughs> you know, once I've done that, it's ready. So as soon as I get that, that's when I'm going to start planning the launch. Um, we've had a few conversations about it and he definitely does want to be there. I mean, he's um, He's quite excited about it now. I think for a while he was a bit dubious about the whole thing. But now, because so many people are interested in it and it's going to be a slightly strange launch. I mean, it's going to be, I think, great for me because I think lots of people will probably very charitably buy it. Um, so that'd be nice. Uh, but then, as people point out to me, my also boughts are going to be all over the place. Yes. Um, so I've got all this to look forward to. But, uh, I, I, you know, so the important thing for me, professionally, the important thing for me is I do... You know, I, I help run SPF with Mark, but there's a limit to how much I can do with some of the detail stuff like Facebook ads and Amazon ads because I don't run them in anger. I know the AdWords platform inside out because I run AdWords for SPF. Right. I'm good at that. I can run courses on that, but I can't legitimately 
teach people about Facebook ads because until you're actually got your your hands dirty with your own book, your own marketing, and trying to get you know it's, it's in the detail, isn't it? The the tweaks that give you the little bit of extra value. So I want to get into that stage next. So almost regardless of whether the book's any good or not, regardless of that, it'll be something I'm marketing and trying to make work using these platforms. And that'll be really useful for me. I'm sure it'll be useful for all of your students too. Uh, I mean, I'd love for you to kind of give us a, a, a thousand foot overview update of, of where the SPF courses are, the community. Uh, you and Mark have spent years uh, really thoughtfully building that. And it seems like it's gaining momentum, which is great. Yeah, it does. I think I think what's gaining momentum is the whole indie world is, is gaining momentum. I mean, 20 books was insane. 1100 odd authors in one room in Vegas. Um, we've got a conference we sold out in minutes in, in March in London. A thousand people will be there. It really feels to me after after it clearly was huge and turning into a multi-billion dollar industry, probably multi-billion dollar industry, but it's now visible. It feels visible that that's happening. So I think we're we're all in it at the right time, um, which is great. In terms of the, the courses, for, so we had a call today. When's this going to go out, Jay? Have to be... uh, it'll probably be at least a few months from now. Ah, okay. So I can speculate a little bit about this. So we're keeping it a bit close to our chest at the moment. But um, somebody who's very high up in a very large, well-known online retailer that's very important to booksellers uh, is about to leave the organization is talking to us about doing some work directly for us. So this is somebody who's been absolutely on the inside of an ads platform. So we had a conversation with her today, which was really interesting. She was asking us about where we are with the course and uh, the courses. And when we started, Facebook ads was pretty much the one big thing that Mark was doing. That has changed significantly. It is now Amazon ads for him. And he spends most of his time, effort, and money on Amazon ads. Facebook ads is still very important. And I still meet people for whom Facebook ads is it. And Amazon ads has never really worked. So it, you know, it's definitely not that platform's gone. This one's taking over. It's not as simple as that. But the result was that the Facebook ads course is, is detailed, granular, modulized. I mean, it's huge. And the Amazon ads course is more, we think, introductory this is how the platform works you might want to think about this you know this you know some hints on, on getting good keywords etc but we think our next thing will be to turn the amazon ads course into a very detailed granular thing now whether that's going to be we're tossing around the idea of having a kind of ninja level course above it you know advanced course of facebook ads advanced and amazon ads advanced to sit above the existing courses which are correctly pitched i think for people coming in uh, and getting going so we basically have As for Authors, which is the paid ads course that's open as I speak, and 101, which is the, the foundation course. And that's our kind of most successful and popular course is 101 because there's just lots of people who, who want to give it a go or been writing for years or suddenly realize they don't need an agent anymore to mm. tell them that their book's any good, that they can just get on with it. That's the entry um, point for them. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a, it's a good, it's, I'm using it now. Yeah, <laughs> literally using it now. So even though I've sat there editing it for years and years, I'm actually using it now. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned twenty books to fifty k. I want to go back to that for a second because uh, I missed you at Thriller Fest. We were both in New York City, and I, I you were one place, and I, and then you went walking another place. But I, I know you were there, and you talked to a lot of people at Thriller Fest. So I'm wondering how, how your perspective on the industry the vibe at Thriller Fest versus the vibe at 20 books to 50 K what's it like, what's different sort of, what are you seeing from your end? Yeah. I mean, completely different. Mm. So Thriller Fest is, is 
more or less the same as it was 20 years ago before Indy started. I mean, that's the vibe there. Most people you speak to, a lot of the conversations are about agents and um, query letters and pitches and all the rest of them. But they actually have pitch fest there, don't they? And so the bit that is very useful to us and is very good is craft fest, which is sort of built within Thriller Fest. The craft bit, I think, is superb. So whether you're talking to big trad authors, we talked to, you know, James Rollins and Harlan Coben and, and so on that time. When you're talking craft, it doesn't matter how you publish your book, it doesn't make any difference. You talk about how to write the book. Um, but the as soon as you start talking about publishing, you know, you do get a kind of a slightly old-fashioned view, I think, of indie there. Well, I would say an old-fashioned view of indie there at the moment. And there didn't seem to me to be a lot of momentum for... Because the London Book Fair is really trying to embrace indie more and put make sure it's a good and valuable place for indies to go. Didn't get that feeling at Thriller Fest particularly. I think they kind of tolerate them on the side, still seen as a fringe. I mean, boy, they're going to wake up one day and suddenly realise... Um, that this entire industry has been turned upside down and they just were barely aware of it. But that doesn't mean it's not a very useful conference to go to. I, I don't know. Did you find it useful? I absolutely did. Uh, I did Pitch Fest and uh, that, even if you have no desire to query agents or go through that process, I think having the skill to sit down and in 30 seconds deliver a pitch about this massive novel. It's hard for writers to do. It's easy for us to throw words and words and words at things, but it's harder, I think, to be more succinct. And uh, so I, I do. I, I think it was really valuable. I, I agree with you. There were a lot of uh, craft sessions there uh, and, and just meeting people, you know, like uh, yeah. JD and I met at, at Thriller Fest yeah. and I hadn't, wouldn't have met him if I hadn't gone. So JD is the shining exception, isn't he, to he, that yeah. world? Because he's very entrenched in trad in many ways. He's got, he's got feet in both camps, but he's, you know, he's got traditionals licked in terms of how he organizes it and makes, makes it work for him. But he understands and is excited by indie. I mean, for me, that's the right attitude. Somebody thinks this is amazing what's happening rather than this, slightly standoffish attitude which you do get from quite a lot of the guys there. yeah he and he doesn't pass judgment and i think that's what uh i really admire about him he he knows reasons to self-publish and he has reasons for working with his agent and he doesn't he doesn't see one as better than the other and i think going forward especially with you know dean Koontz uh coming over to amazon yeah. i mean as, as you said uh you know the 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 people in the in the more traditional world are going to be taking notice, especially when you have someone like that of that caliber being the, the first one to sort of, you know, break the line and, and, and cross the line rather. And yeah. it could be really interesting to see where, where the industry goes because of that. Yeah. Well, we're, we're, we're working on a PR plan for London. So I had a meeting this week with a PR company in London and I, I want to sort of ruthlessly focus on money on it because <laughs> I can't, the ideal thing I want is is for traditional authors, mid-list authors, whose names we know, whose books we see in the in the supermarket and uh, at airports. I want them to start hearing about the kind of money that Mark Dawson and um, LJ Ross and, and others are making and them to go, huh, if I divide my advances by the last three years, I've made 75,000 a year or, or 200,000 a year even. These guys are knocking on a million. This is... Hmm, maybe there is something because that's the <laughs> frankly money talks right that's the thing that's going to make them take indie seriously absolutely um so i, I i've talked to the pr guy pr woman about how we pitch this out to the um to the media mm -hmm. yeah. and how is 
I, I'm curious to know how uh, sort of Patreon and the SPF Foundation, how how are those part of your your business plan? Uh, what roles do they serve? I, I think it's, you guys have a great model on many levels, and I'd love to kind of dig in a little bit on this. Sure. So Patreon was um, just a bit of an aside, really. We had the podcast going, and we thought, well, it's something that could like be ring fenced money to support the podcast, all the equipment and the time. You will, you're you're starting this podcast out, right? How many interviews yeah. have you done now? Uh, well, there's there's only been a few published as of the time of recording okay. this, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> not many. <laughs> so you will know that it you know it, it starts to consume your life. I mean, yeah. I've I, there was a point where I thought I can't really go on with this, but you get you get through that actually because you just instead of it being something you're thinking about thinking about oh here it is I'm doing it you stop thinking about it beforehand you, you compartmentalize it and I I do my interviews and we do our wraps every week now and it's on in the very but we're 200 episodes in so <laughs> it took that while to become routine um but there's a lot of time and effort to so we thought Patreon will support the podcast um but because we always we're got catholic guilt or something about <laughs> you know, not giving value back so we then built a kind of um ecosystem around uh, the Patreon supporters called the SPF University. So as soon as you support the podcast, even if it's the lowest tier, which is a dollar an episode, you get access to the live training webinars and the shelf of, of material uh, that goes with that, as well as all the other sort of stuff you, you give away with Patreon. Um, and yeah, it's worked well. So I think, you know, it's all very public, I think, isn't it? I think we have 340 odd Patreon supporters um, giving, giving between one and three dollars a month. It's not an insignificant amount of money. It does pay for a lot of the subscriptions. We use, we're using Zoom again now that you, you guys are using for this connection, but uh, there's something called IPDTL, which is really expensive and is much better than Zoom, although it's starting to be a bit flaky. So we might just go back anyway. It pays for that type of thing, slightly above and beyond. Um, and the foundation, I mean, that's very much a part of the fact we are a commercial company and we make a profit. And I think it's, you know, the onus is on anybody who turns a profit to think, well, what part of that goes back to the community that, that helps us uh, grow as a company? And it's as simple as that. We know that there are people who can't afford our courses, but more than that, can't afford editing, can't afford a book cover, and yet are good writers. And if we can find them, that's what the SPF Foundation is about. Uh, then we give them all our materials, all our courses, and I think it's $3,000 worth of editing and book covers to give them that head start. Um, so yeah, and that's worked well. In fact, I'm going to, going to shortly revisit our first students to see how they got on with that. And Wonderful. I know, I know a couple of them are doing well. Was that something you, uh, you pitched to Ricardo or was that something you did through Reedsy on your own? I think Ricardo is very good at keeping his ear to the ground and hearing what's going on and saying, I want to be involved in that. So Ricardo was very up for that. I mean, it's a great synergy for him, isn't it? Because yeah. uh, firstly, it's great to be putting money in. They, yeah, I should say, read. you're quite right to raise that because they do put the other 1500 in for each person, the other half of it. But the second half of part of that is, of course, it works well because it highlights all the services you get through Reedsy and uh, I am now a Reedsy customer. I got my, <laughs> Mark Swift, my line editor from Reedsy. Uh, so that's all going through there. So, yeah. That, that's great. Uh, I, I want to maybe circle back around too, because you seem to have flight in your blood uh, from your, your parents. Uh, yeah, you're, you know, this is, 
and, and I think that what's really uh, relevant about this is that it's sort of a lesson in branding. Uh, you don't have a published book yet, but yet I, I've already, I have a, a brand vision for you. And I think that's a credit to you and what you've done with a, a very minimal website and, and just a, a basic presence. But uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, your, maybe your dad in the RAF or your mom as an air traffic controller and sort of how that's, that's been, uh, you know, become part of you, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it sort of happened quite late for me because my my father, as you say, was a, is in the RAF. He joins. I mean, he's ninety in February, actually. Wow. Um, still going strong, just down the road for me. Uh, but he he joined the RAF in late forties, like forty nine. I then did his flying training in fifty two, fifty three. Flew through the fifties and sixties. I was born in sixty seven, so I never saw him flying a fixed wing aeroplane. I saw him, actually, I saw him flying hovercraft. Do you know what hovercraft are? <laughs> oh, These no. huge things with skirts that, that go across the water. They, they hover over the water. I mean, the Americans used the technology. We didn't go on with it, but he was a test pilot on hovercrafts. So I remember that. So as a kid, I wanted to be a hovercraft pilot because you're very influenced by, you know, what your parents do and so on. Uh, but it was later in life, and I kind of, I should say, I flunked school. I was not a great uh, achiever in the first, until I was about 25, and I kind of woke up. And about that period, I started to realize that my dad was like this test pilot. He flew these, you know, again, it's on video, but the big bomber behind me and small jets and, and he achieved a huge amount. And I'd become increasingly more and more fascinated with that world, his world, who he is, who I am as a result of that. Um, and, and aircraft generally. So I have my favorite era is kind of his era, those jets, the cold war era, the fifties and sixties. Okay. Post-war then, post-war. Yeah. Post-war. Yeah. So I'm not, I, I, everyone loves the spitfire and stuff like that. Yeah. But if you said to me, it's an air show with, with hunters and Vulcans and valiants. Um, some people know what these are vampires and venoms. So I'm going to go to that one every day of the week, <laughs> the early jets, the blackbird and so on. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so I became interested in it and that's, Funny enough, of course, is where the book came from, because I just sat down on that NaNoWriMo day back in 2010, and this story fell out of me. And it was part, partly because of, I'm nostalgic for that era, and partly because my father came out of it very closed up as an individual, like a lot of those guys did, very unemotional, uh, is to this day. And this story is about why that happens and how it happens and the choices my particular character um, gets to make is to kind of for not to go down that route um, when he's faced with the consequences. So uh, yeah, it's all, it is. And I, I'm naturally an aviation geek, you know, I, <laughs> I could probably recognize most aircraft that fly overhead and my friends roll their eyes at the amount of uh, aviation chat I come up with, <laughs> but you're right. You don't, it's useful for that to be a brand and I'm using Pinterest more than anything else. Trouble is, I'm interested in quite a lot of things. So I've diluted it a little bit. So on Twitter, you know, I follow a lot of cricket and sport. I quite like following politics as well. I don't, don't get political on Twitter, but I follow other politicians and interact with that a little bit. And um, I realize from a brand point of view, probably I should strip all that other stuff out and just start building a following of the of the aviation geek side of things. But It seems, uh, just from what I know from air shows over here in the States, it seems like there's a very hardcore following of aviation fans. Uh, I would have to think that fiction written towards that audience would, would do quite well in that niche. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Certainly, I didn't find it very difficult to find people who wanted to beta read it, who who flew in the era or worked in the RAF in, in the era. They are around and they are interested and nostalgic for it. At the same time, I want, you know, I want the novels to be like Mark's novels. I want them to be 
genre fiction that can be picked up and read by anybody, not just the people, the veterans who lived through it. And I kind of already know this hasn't happened yet, but I know it's going to happen. They are going to be my toughest critics. <laughs> They're going to be the ones who write me the email saying, you got this all wrong, buddy. This is not like this. I'm, you know, I know the two beta readers who read it weren't in the REF, so they didn't give me any of that internal feedback. Um, but one of them said, I, you know, I can't believe that would have really happened. And actually, the things he was querying actually did happen because I know firsthand. But I know what's going to happen is that some veteran, it didn't happen to them on their RAF stations. So they're going to say that never happened. Another RAF veteran. So, you know, I'm not going to win with those guys. No. I know that. So I'm, I'm more interested in somebody who's age 30, didn't live through that era and just wants to read a nice, you know, good, good yarn. Did you have to hold yourself back from, from really geeking out as you were writing this book and, and getting into the aircraft and the specs and, and all those sorts of details? Or did you just kind of let it fly and just go with it? Well, I was quite inspired by the writers of Top Gun, the screenplay. So in Top Gun, everyone, you think you know the film well, but it's, if you pay close attention to it, they made a decision early on to use the jargon and not explain it. So there's no clumsy explanation in, in Top Gun of what they're doing. It all comes out very fast. In fact, because I was a bit of an aviation geek, I was hearing phrases banded around that I knew for certain I might have been the only one or two people in the theater who understood what a Rio was at that stage and uh, what they were talking about, the wake vortex and so on. And I loved that about it because it gave it an atmosphere that even if you didn't know what it was about, suddenly you were in the mi middle of it. It's like being in the middle of a, a genuine unit where they don't turn to you every five seconds and it's like in back to the future you know marvin <laughs> berry you know his brother you know where they have to <laughs> right laboriously explain what's going on um i loved that so i took that and i wanted it to be like that but tempered it a little bit yeah so my development editor uh, jenny nash was the one who who really helped bring it back to the people a little bit because of course that is the danger of us aviation geeks that's the whole point of the book really sort of value aircraft over people um, but I, yeah, so now there's it, a lot of it. There's a lot of home life, a lot of the wives and, uh, and my, you know, my sort of secret agent person is female in it as well. So I've tried to, um, make sure there's a reasonable balance for people who aren't necessarily interested in the wingspan of a Vulcan. <laughs> well, it seems as though Andy Weir really pulled that off with the Martian. I mean, he wrote a very technical sci-fi novel that had mainstream appeal. So I, I think you're right in that you don't necessarily have to dumb things down or, or break that fourth wall and, and just trust that the reader will take it within the context and it becomes almost part of the setting. Yeah, exactly right. I think that's exactly right. So it's, it's, it, it doesn't matter if they don't necessarily understand the nuances of it. It's quite exciting to hear it all happening and unfolding in front of you. As you know, when we watch the space launches, you know, mm. they're better now, aren't they? Because they're their PA who does kind of explain <laughs> things. But, you know, back in the 60s, you were suddenly exposed to these, these poll counts, retro guidance, you know, stuff. And it's almost another language, Well, it was another language, which made it atmospheric and exciting, even though we didn't have a clue what they were going on about so yes i'm definitely trying to go for that excellent uh i wonder if maybe you could talk for just a moment about uh sort of your approach to the business of writing uh i know that you know uh the podcast isn't the only thing you do and the book is not the only thing you're working on so you know what are some of the other things that you do that maybe uh that generate revenue or sort of build leads for you and and just allow you to make a living well, my my main living is SPF. I mean, I I basically run the company for Mark. So if we have a meeting, I'm the one who, who chairs it and says this is the agenda, this is what needs to be done. Mark's the inspirational strategist and does things that I can't do. And John Dyer runs lots of it technically. 
Um, but that's my main job and my income. We are shareholders of that company and we pay ourselves a dividend out of that, depending on how we do each month. That's my main income. Um, I wound down a lot of my other stuff. So I did video production for a while and occasionally do some presentation and stuff for people, but almost none of that now. So uh, the book, I'm hoping, I do need more income streams. So two things happening. Uh, one is that Mark and I are trying to get a publishing company off the ground. So a kind of hybrid publishing company where we'll basically go 50-50 with the author and we'll do the advertising and, and stuff for them. So we've got a first author, uh, but um, we're sort of a bit bogged down in the legal stuff. Again, doing everything for the first time is hard. And so um, it's, a, it's sat on my table. It's one of those things that's on my list. I've got a read the stuff back from the lawyers and then decide whether I'm going to send it to them for a final look or we're going to make changes to that. So all that stuff's happening. Uh, and the other thing is the book. So I would like, ideally, one of those two to start generating some other income in the next 12 months so that I've got more than one income. Because if Mark gets hit by a bus tomorrow or just decides he doesn't want to do SBF anymore, which is is possible, then um, I've got to have some cover somewhere yeah were you able to grab uh, craig martell for a few minutes in vegas or have you guys been talking about them as far as the publishing stuff goes yeah so i mean i talked to Ma michael a lot uh, about that stuff um and i had dinner with michael um he's he's you know trying to push ahead with with changing the world on yeah. that front i mean they're huge already uh, it's funny because when you talk to people about starting a publishing company what the most of them say is don't <laughs> because it's a huge amount of work um uh, so yeah, I did pick his brains and I'm more picking Craig's brains over our live event. So that's what I'm talking to him about, his experience of organizing 20 Books Vegas and, and Edinburgh and all the other, and Bali, all the other conferences they do, because uh, we're doing that for the first time as well. So. so none of that advice about not doing it has scared you guys off? Not so far, <laughs> not so far. I mean, I really think this is, this is a big area. We meet people... Uh, quite frequently who are quite quietly building up sizable businesses, publishing books, um, you know, other, other authors book. And there are plenty of authors who would very happily never log on to the Amazon KDP dashboard, quite happily never get involved in any of that stuff. Uh, and then there are others who enjoy it as much as they enjoy the writing side of it, which I think I will probably be. And with Mark Dawson standing next to me, you know, it would be a shame to waste all that knowledge. And um, yeah, so I'm, I'm genuinely excited about that. And the author we've got in mind is, is great. Uh, the books are fantastic. So um, yeah, hopefully that's going to work. All right. That was James Blatch. What a great guy, huh? Oh, man. It, it, it's so fun to hear from, from him, like outside of his normal element, you know, just to yeah. take him outside of the SPF podcast and, and give it's almost like a, a hostage that got released and he gets to tell you what, what's happening a little bit. <laughs> um, not, not that he's not enjoying himself. I'm sure he has a great time over there working with Mark, but it, it's cool to hear from him because it's always, you know, it's always about him, you know, introducing somebody else or interviewing somebody else. And it, it's nice to know what's going on in his life. And I'll tell you, man, interviewing someone who interviews other people is, is, a nice treat. <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's it, being interviewed is hard. It's hard. You know, it's hard work and, and it, you, you kind of have to practice at it. So when I'm interviewing someone who's on the other side of the microphone, they're sort of anticipating what that verbal volley is going to be. And, and uh, it's just a real smooth conversation when that happens. Yeah. And you, honestly, I mean, you could hear it. I don't think interviewers, you know, like you, like him, I don't think you guys get enough credit for doing what you do because, you know, I, I'm on the other side of that most often and I, it's difficult to get information out of me. I mean, it's, it's literally <laughs> like pulling teeth sometimes and, and you guys are, are really good at it and you make it seem so effortless. Um, I think that that's what's key. Um, 
some of the stuff that he brought up on his book, like 9,000 line edits, holy cow. Yes. Um, but, but I get it. Um, and then some of the, you know, he brought up, um, little things, you know, like, um, you know, like how to write a time, how to write a date. Um, you know, I, I've actually got a, a simple note document with all those things in there. Um, you know, like if I write it, how, how, how do you spell okay in, in something that you're writing? Drafting it's O-K-A-Y. Right. So that, that's what I do. But like, if you read a, a Jack Reacher novel, he, he puts, o, you know, capital O, capital K yeah. um, with no periods. Other people put O period, K period. Other people spell it like you just did. Um, so personally, I, I keep a simple note document of all those types of changes that I see my copy editor make in, in my own work. Um, so that the next time I write something, if I come across one of them, you know, I, I, I refer to that document. Um, you know, another simple one is, is T-shirt. Um, you know, a lot of people put capital T uh, hyphen shirt. Oh, yeah. um, I noticed in Stephen King novels, he actually spells it out lowercase T E E hyphen shirt. Other people just have T no hyphen. Um, you know, so little things like that. And like, and King is actually wrong. If you go by the, the Chicago manual of style, um, it should be capital T uh, hyphen shirt. But it, it, to me, it's less intrusive to see it the way that he writes it. It mm -hmm. doesn't jump off the page as much. Um, so I add those kind of things to my document as well. And yeah, you know, every once in a while, like writing times is one of the things that me and my copy editor have actually gone back and forth on because I, I prefer to physically write them out. I think I, I like the way that it looks better um, unless it's a scene that's, you know, that's moving really fast. And then sometimes the numbers work um, and she gets mad at me because I, ju I jump back and forth. Um, Another thing I've been trying to figure out lately, and, and this is you know, just kind of goofy, but like, when do you use a character's first name versus their last name yeah. or use both of their names? Um, and, and, you know, that changes, you know, just in the genre that you're writing and the type of book and it changes per author. Um, so I've been trying to, to tackle that one, too. And, and I've been finding that simple things, um, you know, like using a first name for even in a, in a police procedural novel, if you use a first name for like your lead detective, or your lead cop, um, it's a lot more personal as the reader is, is reading it. You know, it's, it's like one step removed from being a, a first person novel. Um, if, if you write it in third person, but you use the first name instead of their last name. Um, with the 4MK novels, I used Porter for the most part, which was his last name. But then if there was any type of inner dialogue or a conversation, a lot of people called him Sam, which was his first name. Um, so I tried to, to mix him in there. Um, so hearing that come from, from him is, was, was kind of, kind of cool. What, what did you take away from it? I loved the way, uh, I, I, like the sort of the write what you know, advice, like you can go back and forth on that, whether or not that's, that's good advice, but I loved how his, uh, his family history, you know, his, his dad, his mom being an air traffic controller, and then, and then him writing, you know, the status of, or the, the last flight writing that book it, it feels like so him. It feels like authentic to him. And I, I loved how that came through, that this guy is writing a, a piece of fiction that he really cares about that's sort of deeply embedded in who he is. And, and, and that really struck me as like, oh, yeah, you know what? We should all feel that way about every book we write. Yeah, absolutely. And, and when he brought up Top Gun, like that was one of those aha moments for me because, you know, you take that movie for granted because it's, it's a fun movie to watch yeah. and even now. Um, but, but they do use a lot of jargon in that movie that, you know, it slips right past you. And, and you know, he kind of honed in on something that I've never really thought about from a movie standpoint, but it's something that I tried to, you know, with Dracul, I really tried to implement this. But, you know, they would mention a word or, or jargon, you know, whatever it is, a word or a phrase. Um, but the scene itself would actually explain what that was. So if it was some crazy far out word that you've never heard before that you would normally, if you saw it all by itself on a sheet of paper, you'd have to pull out the dictionary to figure out what it meant. Um, and you, But if you heard it in Top Gun, the scene itself explained what that was. And when you write, um, I think an author really needs to try and do that as well. So if you're going to use a word that doesn't necessarily fit or that might 
be difficult. Make sure the surrounding dialogue or something else in that text explains what it is um, without turning into an information dump because that's, you know, you're always bordering that. Um, and, and I really, I had to do this quite a bit when I was writing Dracul because, you know, it was a Victorian era novel. You know, I was trying to set it, you know, using Bram's vocabulary, Bram's tone, you know, from the, the 1900s, late 1800s. Um, so there's a lot of words and phrasing in there that, you know, today wouldn't hold water. So, you know, I had to make sure that, you know, something around there supported that word. Because the last thing you want is for somebody to have to, you know, stop reading to, to look up a word in a dictionary or to, you know, on Kindle hit the little button so they can, it can tell them what it is. Anything that takes them out of the story is always bad. Yeah. I have that same type of challenge. And anytime I'm writing anything that's more science fiction or fantasy related, because you do have to walk that line. Like you, you don't want to be explaining all the science in the story at the same time, you can't leave the reader in the dust. So it, it's a tricky balance. Yeah. And you had mentioned, I think, um, The Martian with Andy Weir, and that, that's a really good example of that. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, when I read that, I found myself flipping through some of the pages because he does explain a lot of the science in there. Um, you know, and I think people tend to skip over that kind of thing. It's it's great that, you know, the science that he used was was realistic and, and could really, you know, is about as close to the truth as it could be. Um, but at the same time, I don't necessarily want to read four or five pages on it. So you just you have to walk that tightrope. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it was great. James was a great guest. Uh, super hap uh, happy to have him on the show. Um, you know, unfortunately, we won't be seeing him or Mark at Thriller Fest this year, but uh, but maybe next year. But uh, yeah, thanks thanks to James for coming on. It was a blast. Yeah, hopefully we can have him back after the book comes out and we can hear how that how the actual launch went. Yeah, yeah, that'd be fun. Well, next week we have one of my friends coming on, uh, Lindsay Baroker. Nice. Yeah, I don't know if uh, it, it just so happened the timing worked out. I've been getting the Amazon emails about KDP University, and uh, there's Lindsay's face all over him. She she's doing some <laughs> uh, some university sessions for uh, for Amazon, so um, it'll be great to have her on uh, next week. She is uh, incredibly accomplished when it comes to uh, mostly independent publishing um, fo and focusing primarily on uh, science fiction, space opera, fantasy. Um, so heavily in genre fiction and, um, she's been doing it for a long time. So it's going to be a fun conversation. I've been getting a lot of the university emails as well. And I try to take advantage of those things as much as I can. And even if your book is, is traditionally published where you don't have control over those kind of things, I think it's important to actually understand the process that's happening behind, behind the scenes. Um, and, and, and sometimes you may end up explaining it to your publisher. You never know, yeah. or, <laughs> or, or your editor, um, you know, cause they don't have necessarily have the time to watch these things and they may not know that a particular feature is available. Um, but, but knowing that those things are out there, I think are huge. So, you know, regardless of your publication path, you know, try to take advantage of those as, as much as possible. Yeah, definitely. And you should be getting them if you're on, uh, if you're published with uh, Kindle, you should be getting them. So cool. All right. Well, to our listeners, we appreciate your support. And if you like what you're hearing, please tell a friend or consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Until next time, have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers, Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.